0: Welcome to the Beach Grove United Methodist Church Sermon Podcast for Sunday, May the 2nd, the fifth Sunday of Easter. Thank you for listening this week, and if you would like to view the service in its entirety, please go to our Facebook or YouTube page by following one of the links in the podcast notes. Also, we would like to invite you to please support our ministry here at Beach Grove through your offerings. We have both online and physical giving opportunities, and we encourage you to reach out to us if you have any questions about giving. Our contact information is in the podcast notes. To stay connected each week, we invite you to go and like our Facebook page, subscribe to our YouTube channel, subscribe to our emails, and subscribe to this podcast. We hope you enjoy this week, and please don't forget to share the message with others. This week's scripture lesson comes from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7-21. through Beloved, let us love one another, because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father has sent His Son as the Savior of the world. God abides in those who confess that Jesus is the Son of God, and they abide in God. So we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and those who abide in Him abide in love, abide in God, and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. Those who say, I love God and hate their brother and sisters are liars, for those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this, those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. My mouth and the meditations of each one of our hearts be holy and pleasing to you. That as we enter this time today, you, we would hear you speak to us that we may grow more in your love and grace. Amen. When we think of perfection, what is the first thing that comes to your minds? For me, it is a perfect game in baseball. A perfect game in baseball is defined by Major League rules saying an official perfect game occurs when a pitcher or pitchers retires each batter on the opposing team during the entire course of a game, which consists of at least nine innings. In a perfect game, no batter reaches any base during the course of the game. On April 14th of this year, Carlos Rodon of the Chicago White Sox threw a no-hitter. Seems simple enough. Rodon pitched nine innings of baseball, had not one single batter record a hit against him, and yet it wasn't a perfect game. The one blemish, he hit a batter on the foot. An amazing feat and yet not a perfect game. On June 2nd, 2010, Armando Galarraga, then of the Detroit Tigers, was one out away from a perfect game. And by way of a botched call by the first base umpire, lost it. In recording the final out on the next batter, Galarraga was left with a complete game one hitter not a perfect game. Now here's a crazy one. Here's a crazy one. And yes, I had to look up the date, but yes, I remember hearing about this game. So March 26th, 1959, Henry Haddix pitches what is known as the best game in Major League Baseball history. By any account, everybody agrees that it is the best pitched game. Has a perfect game through 12 innings. Never gave up a single hit, never hit a batsman, never walked anybody. His team had no errors, and yet allowed a hit in the 13th inning. And his game was not perfect. Again, tabbed by many as the greatest pitching performance in the history of baseball. 36 straight retired batters, and yet still not perfect. That idea of a perfect game has only been done 21 times in the history of, America, of Major League Baseball a span that covers over 125 years. I am sure that for many of us, perfection has an ideal that may seem similar to a perfect game in baseball. In fact, some of our first word associations, when we hear the word perfection, often might include purity, spotlessness, holiness, sinlessness, fullness. Perfection for humanity is a manner of absolutes. It has to be done completely, or it's not perfect. And while many of these words seem to fit our common understanding of perfection, we as Christians encounter somewhat of a different understanding when it comes to identifying what a perfect Christian is. And as we look at our passage here in John today, and we reflect even on John Wesley, we see that as Christians, perfection is attainable. Perfection is something that we can earnestly strive after. Perfection is something that we can achieve. We have said it that perfection is, we have, as Christians, we often say that perfection is freedom from mistakes, from errors, and even from harm. But really, to be perfect means that you abide perfectly in God's love. The kingdom of God, especially as we find it in Scripture, shows us that perfection is something that we can achieve, because perfection is a sense of living and existing, not a a sense of absolutes. It is not a set of rules or an idealism, but it is a way and manner of existing in God's image. We live a life in such a way that we desire, nor could we fathom, separation from God. We live fully in this understanding and emanate it in such a way that others encounter God's creation through our, the God of creation through our witness. And as we will go on to explore, it will cast out fear. And it includes casting out the fear of making bad decisions, fear of messing up, and fear even of letting down God. Rather, love brings us in and reminds us who God is and the place that God holds in our hearts. And that's what we've been doing in this series that we've been going through this Easter season. We have been studying this matter of what it means to be a perfect Christian. As John Wesley defines it, this sense of Christian perfection that exists within our faith. The nature of this perfection being directly connected to our understanding and really the situation of our relationship with God. And by extension, the way in which we relate to, as John calls it here in this letter, the world as well. So far in this series, we have looked at what it means to be justified by God's love. That is that we enter at some point in time in our lives into this relationship with the God who created us, the God who loves us, the God who redeems and sustains us. And then we wrestled with this manner and nature of sin and the nature and recognize this relationship we can have with God and this nature that we have a relationship with the world. And when we begin to separate ourselves from God, the manner in which it hinders our growth in God's love, when we understand sin, we can personally reflect on those manners in which we create harm, both in our relationship with God and in our relationship with our neighbors. And diving more into that last week, looking more in depth at this word love as it is presented not just here in John, but in scripture as a whole. Last week I did a lot of talking on what it means to love our neighbor, and I sort of established for us this baseline of what it looks like to love unconditionally and sacrificially. For those of you who who may have missed last Sunday, or or here is a refresher, that we define love, this nature of love that we find here in John and that Jesus uses in in the scripture as well, this nature of agape love which not only incorporates aspects of other types of love that we more traditionally know as humans, that is, that familial, a friendly, even a marital, intimate love, but this love is an unconditional, self-sacrificial love. It is unmerited, undeserved, and comes with no strings attached. When we consider this love, your mind may turn to the famous wedding passage, 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, love is kind, love is envious, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own ways. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You see, that is Paul's definition of agape love, love that is unconditional, the love that we receive from God and that we therefore are called to share with our neighbors. However, in recognizing what this love is and the fact that it should guide our relationships, we have to wrestle with where does this insistence to love come from. And no sooner than we defining love last week does the epistle writer John invite us to consider this question. If our command is to love, then what is the model that we have? Or where do we get this insistence that we must love our neighbor? And the most notable expression of this in the scripture before us today is when John writes, so we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. And here's the great verse. We love because God first loved us. As if it's something that I need to say again, the nature of God is love. But you see, it is an important concept for us to remember. That's why we say it over and over again. That is why John seems so fixated on using the word love to describe God. If God is love, then the very nature of our existence as Christians, as followers of Christ, as believers of God, is to love. And by our very nature, to be loved. This is one of those things that just draws me in to Christianity. This is one of the things that I love about this Wesleyan Methodist tradition is this insistence that God's grace is everywhere. That the nature of being in relationship with God is being in a relationship that is defined by love and that calls us to be better human beings. This insistence, this basic understanding of love is known as prevenient grace. Wesley, as a pastoral theologian, you see, he uses sermons to express a lot of his theology, which always makes understanding what Wesley thought pretty fun. We don't have a book that Wesley wrote. We just have a collection of hundreds of sermons. But you see, Wesley talks about grace a lot because Wesley believed that grace was the foundational understanding of what it was to be a Christian. He believed that in understanding grace, we could understand and live more fully into who God calls us to be. And talked about grace almost exhaustingly. Does that sound like anybody y'all might know? Wesley names that there is one grace that flows forth from God. Filling us that we take to go and to fill others. And Wesley then breaks it down. That there are different manners and moments in which we experience God's grace in our lives. And Bob sort of began to address some of this in his sermon in the first week of our series. He called us to look at grace in a justifying manner which is this manner in which we enter into this right relationship, right? At some point in time in our lives, we have to know and understand that God loves us, that God has loved us since the very beginning and that we were created in the image of God. And that moving into relationship is known as justification, right? We are made just when we recognize who God is, when we enter into repentance and reconciliation in our lives. And then once we are justified in God's grace, we are then sanctified in it we then move on that journey. Wesley often referred to grace as a house. That justification was entering the door of the house. And when you were being sanctified in God's grace, you were exploring the house, moving from room to room, learning new and different things about who God is. Each room inviting you to consider more and more who God is. But you see, there was this one, there was this one understanding of grace in which Wesley stood out for many of his contemporary theologians. And it was this idea of prevenient grace. It was that before all of that, before you enter the door of the house, before you explore the house, there is a house there. And there is a porch that you stand on. And it is this understanding that God has loved you since the very beginning. That God has loved you before everything. That God loves you in their mistakes. That God loves you even when you don't love God. God's love is always there for humanity. Provenient stems from this, under, this Latin word, that which comes before. It is this nature and insistence that God loves in the midst of a broken world. That God loves in the midst of a distortion of the divine image within us. Basically, God's love is always present all across the earth in each and every person even when we don't or even can't recognize it. Why? I think John makes it pretty clear to us. Because God is love. Not only is this a reminder for us in our deepest and darkest times that God is always there for you and me, even when we can't see it, but it is also a reminder that because God loved us in this way, Because God loved me before I could even recognize and love God back? That we hearken back to where we were last week. That so too do I love my neighbor in the same respect that God loves me. If this insistence of love comes from God, then naturally what is our model? Who do we look to to understand what it means to live it out in the world? And John tells us this as well. As we look in verses 9 and 10, God's love was revealed among us in this way. Thank you, John, for making it easy for us. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. You see, God sent Jesus so that we could understand God's love, so that we could see God's love lived out and enacted on this earth so that we could know God's love in such a way that we would not desire sin, we would not desire separation from God, but that we would desire to live fully in the love that God has for us and to live and show fully that love that God has for others. Jesus is, the way to the, Jesus is the way to God. And by that nature, Jesus atones for this nature in which we as humanity seek separation from God. Because we seek to identify love according to our own standards. It is our connection with God through the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Christ that invites us to weigh the nature of God's love in our lives. When we join join what John is informing us on in this text, with what we talked about last week, this insistence that John gives to love our neighbor, we encounter the narrative that commands us to love unconditionally, just as God has loved us. And you know what the cool thing is? You know what I love about John? John doesn't use work. This isn't work. But it's an insistence. It's a lifestyle. It's how we live. Look at John's definition of perfect love. John says in verses 17 through 19, he writes, love has been perfected among us in this. Again, like John, you know, right there, this is what I'm going to tell you. That we may have boldness on the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. Just as God existed in this world in Jesus Christ, so too are we called to exist in this world. Just as Jesus loves, so too do we love. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. And then again, verse 19 We love because God first loved us. Think about the implications of that as you are living your life. Think about the implications that are present in this love from God. God almost expects heartbreak when it comes to loving us. The love love that God offers has no understanding of fear. God's love has no understanding of hurt, pain, or rejection. God loves because it is God's very nature. We cannot, nor could we ever, expect to love God the same as God loves us. That is the nature of God's love. Perfect love casts out all fear. And so God's love is perfect. God, God knows that there is no way we could return the immense amount of love that God has for us. And yet God looks for us to extend that love back to God and back to our neighbors. And y'all, that is the point of grace. That is the point of God's grace is that we are constantly growing towards that point. We are constantly growing in God's love. And in growing in God's love, we grow to be loved more like God. We cannot, nor should not, expect for someone to ever reciprocate our love for them either. Right? Because we love like God. We are called to love without fear. Because perfect love casts out fear. Fear of harm, fear of retribution, even fear of pain. This is such a foreign concept for us, right? How many of us in here have been hurt by love? I I, Like, okay, yep. No, it's fine. You don't, like, if you don't want to raise your hand, that's fine. No, y'all, love hurts. Love hurts, especially when they don't love us back. How many of y'all have been friend zoned? Some, Some of the older people may not know what that is. It's all right. It's okay. You see, we have to love God the same way that God loves us. And we have to love others the same way that God loves us. The cool thing about our relationship with God is that we enter into this relationship knowing that God is going to give us more than we could ever imagine, more than we ever deserve, more than we could ever offer back. And isn't that a great and a wonderful and a life-giving and a life-affirming thing? And so what do we do with that? And John tells us right there in verse 21, that he has given us this command, that anyone who loves God must, must, I love the New Revised Standard version there, must also love their brother and sister. And hear this, this is not like a rule, because you see, what have I been telling you? That this love is a natural thing. It's a natural response. It's an insistence. Y'all, if we are living in God's love, if we love God, then loving our neighbor should be easy. Loving our neighbor should come naturally. It is a natural response. For If God loves us, how can we do anything but give that unmerited, undeserved, unconditional, self-sacrificial love to our neighbor, no matter who they are? God is love. God loves you. Now go and love others. Amen.